to be eating that, not watching it. Oh, but, but, oh my God, that was our buck bank moment. Buck bang, bang, bang moment. We got to get started. Why is that even on first? What's, what's going on, Jennifer? Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Oh, hi. Oh, darling, hi. I saw you backstage putting your glasses. We are so loaded with A-list stars today that I had to fit right in by putting on my A-list glasses. You had oh. to pick up your A-list just recently published best-selling sold out the first printing edition of the food and wine food and beverage magazine Jesus, you're on the wrong show Jennifer. no i, I want I, I want to tell you there's a reason for this so the food and beverage magazine guide to restaurant success mm -hmm. and uh we have we have an a list an a a list of mm -hmm. a listers on with us today we do oh yes we do that's exciting I would take off the glasses. You're, you're freaking me out. It's I'm upsetting kidding. you. I can see this. So it's making me feel weird. I feel dirty. <laughs> Something's going on. So listen, our first guest. Wait, uh, wait, 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 don't we have to discuss my mukbang moment? So you know I didn't have lunch yet today. So I am no. so hungry. I want to dive right in. Oh, here. This will ruin your appetite. This will ruin your appetite. Don't yes, it did. See what I'm saying? I know how to ruin. One thing I do know is how to ruin an appetite. <laughs> And you can read about that in my book. Um, there are influencers, there are leaders, there are innovators, and then there are people who break through all of these. One of the guys who used to come on with me regularly was Gary Vaynerchuk. He used to be in the wine world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now he's just one of these like mega Tony Robbins kinds of guys mm -hmm. who was mm -hmm. wildly successful. Our first guest today, uh, Dan Simons. To Go me, back to Gary V. Let's talk a little bit more about Gary V. We're going to use. No, 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 I want to talk about Dan. Dan to me mm -hmm. reminds me so much of the Gary V that I knew, you know, 10, 15 years ago. He used to come on my show all the time. He was on like I don't want to say every week, but he was on, I don't know, at least twice a month. We wow. had him on all the time. I was digging what he was doing, his energy, everything he was doing. And I tell you that Dan Simons, who is established, he's a restaurateur, he's an operator, he's an innovator, like everybody during COVID, he's having all these challenges, he's adapting, but most importantly, he's stepping into the leadership role we would hope for from somebody, talking about what's going on, and, and he's, he's writing these essays and commentaries. If you don't follow this guy, you're missing out. You want to know what the crystal ball says? It's what Dan Simons says it says. He is, to my mind, the next Gary V. He joins us now from his headquarters, not far from the farm. Dan Simons, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's fun to be here. And indeed, headquarters, also known as home, home office, 
bedroom, kids interruption site, but yes, the pandemic headquarters. I understand, um, I understand Jennifer, he has three children. Yes. You have three kids? I do three boys, 16, 14, and 11. And at any moment, no matter what I've said to them, one of them might appear. I've got nope. an 11. Going into sixth grade, it's awesome. Now, Dan, you may not be able to see this, but this is one of my biggest fans chiming in. Her name is Jody Karicki. And she says, go Dan. Question is, did she mean Daniel Snyder? Oh, I'm thinking Karicki was cheering for me. You know, we've... Yeah. Um, it's this is a fun thing about the restaurant business. You know, a lot of people and let's show us the pictures. Look at this. So, so Dan hosted, right? Can we say this, Dan? Jody's what is it called? Cycle for Survival from her father. Her father passed away, right? Jose Caricky. One of the I used to have breakfast with Jose when I was younger. You can read about it in my book. Um, Jose and all of his like old cohorts, like all the big businessmen in Rockville, right in Maryland, but at the Celebrity Deli. You never heard of a Celebrity Deli? It was the big. It was the biggest thing. So Jose would come in before. He used to own a, the biggest sporting goods store in DC metro area. Did you know this? Big, big sporting goods store guy. And uh, and you're kind enough to host their after their ride for survival cycle for survival. The beautiful little party, right? Go ahead, Dan. I'll let you talk now. No, look, it's, that's just one of the best things about the restaurant business. People, you know, you can you can get together with people when they're sad. You can get together with people when they're happy. You can find a way. I mean, look, right now we're broke and it's a disaster. And you can still find a way to donate food, you know, help causes. So, you know, like that's that's why I'm in this business. Dan, during this period, it's so it's so like this is what I love about you. You're so refreshingly candid that you say things like we're broke, but you don't care. We're still the richest people we know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Look, there's no promise in this life. Nobody's promised a sweet life. Nobody's promised something easy. And if you are lucky enough to have some good fortune, whether you're born into it or you make it for yourself, there's no guarantee it lasts. So, you know, I've, I already lived in my mother-in-law's basement for three years, had no money, had a restaurant fail. Like it's, you know, here we are, this is what we got. One of the things I really want to do um, when we talk to you today is give you a chance to share your most recent essay, which is really the thing that pushed my following you over the top into please come on the show. I've been I've been following you for a little while. I know a lot of the most prominent restaurateurs, operators and consultants that I know also follow you. Um, you're really doing a lot right now to make a name with the way that you're thinking, writing and speaking about what's going on for us all, for our industry. And I want to give you a chance a little later on in the show to share yesterday's, or maybe it's a couple days old now, um, the essay that you that you published and posted. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, some, some of what I write is just about keeping myself sane. And if it's, you know, helpful for anybody who reads it, that's great. But, you know, we all have to find our own therapy and we all have to find our own inspiration. And when we can do it for ourselves or do it for other people, you just got to make a path and, and follow it. Um, and I hate to interrupt you right off the bat, but you never know on this show, Michael and I are very blessed. We have a lot of friends. That's why I say we're the richest people we know, because we've got so many incredible people with us. And Bartholomew Broadbent is a good friend, and he brought an auction to our attention um, at Christie's Auction House. It's going on right now. And... It is one of the most extraordinary collections of wine anyone is ever going to see. 
he's going to tell us the story and of course his own history with Christie's in the auction house and in the wine world is legendary of course his his father had a lot to do with this we're going to turn over our friend is doing a drop in drive by drop by bartholomew broadbent welcome back hey thank you so much jennifer that's weird that you said drive by <laughs> it was you know, weird. Aren't, does, aren't you having drive-by cocktails in no, your that sounds it sounds like you're trying to be like young and you're like this lady trying to be young and hip you know what i'm saying like hey we're, having drive, we're, we're doing a drive-by we're doing a drive-by that's all i just wanted to like point that out if i do that if i try to sound like one of my kids and i say hey that's lit that is lit right that's lit dan you know what i'm saying right that's lit listen dance from my part of the world originally so i'm gonna say this there is a really wicked pissa auction going on, and that's the one that's going to make it sound like I'm trying to sound like I'm cool and hip and local. But more than anything else, there are a couple days left in the sale. The wines are incredible. There are, in fact, some bargains. And the one and only Bartholomew Broadbent is here to talk a little bit about what's still available, why this collection is so important, and, and what it's got. And, Dan, you got to dial in on this one because this is one of those rare opportunities where you can be like, I remember that sale. People will be talking about this for the next 20 years. When they pull out an ancient bottle that's just essentially um, going to be one of the cornerstones of anybody's collection in the future. Bartholomew Broadbent, take it from there. Well, it seems a little bit strange to be talking right after listening to poor old Dan saying, I'm broke, um, to then talking about some of the most expensive wines in the world. I mean, one of these bottles is estimated to go for $60,000, and the current bid is at 48000 um, but it's a, so this is an auction being held by Christie's. It's been going on for a couple of weeks. It ends tomorrow, so tomorrow's the last day for bidding. And I've been checking on the prices, and, and it's really fun to see how they change over time. But today is, and tomorrow over days when it gets crazy, the people who are lurking in the background waiting to bid on things will come out of the woodwork. Um, so Christie's... Um, is sort of a, the most prestigious wine auction house in the world and holds the most important sales. Uh, my father, Michael Broadbent, started the wine auction department at Christie's in 1966. Um, and this sale is a, a sale of a cellar um, which was built in the late 50s and 60s and maybe early 70s by a guy called Ben Ichinozi, who um, was a Japanese... Uh, dentist in California, and he got into wine really young and early and started buying wine when really there wasn't much of a market for, for wine auctions because in prior to 1966, no one was collecting wine and buying because the auctions didn't exist. Um, and Bartholomew, he was buying with discernment and connoisseurship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he learned, he became you know, one of the great experts on on um, wine in America, and he was one of the first collectors. And, and really, uh, back then, I knew of um, the great sellers in America, and there were only about a, half a dozen. Um, there was Ben uh, Ichinozi in California. There was a guy called Lloyd Flat who had two townhouses in, in the French Quarter of New Orleans and converted them into um, wow. wine cellars. There was a guy called Marvin Overton in, in Fort Worth, Texas, and then a, a guy called... Um, uh, Bob Paul and Lou Skinner, two people in um, in uh, Coral Gables, Florida. Those were the great, great wine cellars in America. And, 
and they've all been sold except Benicino's wasn't um, because he drank them. Uh, he he drank his wines. He bought the wines to drink. Um, unfortunately, he died last year, so he can't drink them anymore. Um, but he, his daughter's a great friend of mine, and I was there at the cellar, staying at their house in, in January, looking at the cellar. And it is one of truly the greatest cellars in the world. It was built in three different sections, um, three different temperatures. One was a normal uh, 55 degrees cellar, where, uh, sorry, 52 degrees, where he, he kept his um, ports and things like that. Then there was another cellar at about 50 degrees, and then his most prized wines were kept at 48 degrees, which is lower than normal. But the cooler you keep them, the the, the more uh, they're going to age perfectly to perfection. And so this is the most perfectly um, controlled cellar climate condition that you'll ever find. And also the provenance of wines is impeccable because he was buying them direct from chateaus or uh, from the Christie's auctions, which um, which started uh, started off pillaging great castles in Europe and and Scotland and the cellars, you know, some of the cellars which hadn't been um, open for a hundred years. The, the kids inherited them and found they had a cellar and didn't really like wine. So my father came and helped them to get rid of it at auction. Um, so this is the cellar that's coming up, and, and um, yeah, there are some uh, really expensive wines in it, and. But there are things that even I can afford. So even Dan can afford. Um, there, there are some. There are quite a lot of California wines which don't have any bids on them yet. Um, I know that there are people lurking, waiting to pounce right at the end, hoping to snap up bargains. Um, but some of them will still uh, go below the reserve price or the, the estimated price, I should say. Um, so it's really fun. I think you've got a link to the to the auction catalog and it's really yeah. fun just to look at the catalog and just um, drool over the the most amazing collection of wine to come up for sale um, you know one, these sort of sale, sales only happen once once every 10 or 20 years and there hasn't been a sale like this in the past 10 years um, there's the link if if everybody wants to go and visit this sale Bartholomew <laughs> Because you're our friend in the business, we like to think that when you have a friend in the business, they'll give you that inside track. What are two or three lots that you can direct our audience to that you think might be worth either bidding on because it's a little, uh, well, let's say, well bought at the, the, the levels well, that it's at? Are there any well, hints you can give us? The trouble is I'm bidding on themselves. On, on them myself. So I'd be sort of stepping on my own foot if I told you which ones to go for. Well, don't but, tell us the ones you're bidding on. Tell no. us. Tell us. Wait, but wouldn't it be more? Wouldn't it be more gentlemanly of him? He would be such a gentleman to tell us what it is you're bidding on, Bartholomew, because you're yeah, the closest good. thing we have to James Bond. Right? Not many people yeah. called me a gentleman, so don't worry about that. Well, um, they, they didn't see that picture that I had just posted of you. Can we again? <laughs> <laughs> Dan and um, I are both New Englanders, and so New Englanders like a nice bargain, says so. Yeah, so the real bargains right now is this is the, the greatest collection of California wines that's ever come for sale. Uh, the, bit, or the, the largest collection of California wines ever been on sale. Those ones are sleepers right now. And the other real bargains are the German Rieslings, which are fantastic wines and just 
um, just uh, you know, they're not they're sleeping at the moment as well. If you're going to go for the Bordeaux, um, you've got to really search through that um, section to find any bargains. Um, but there are some, and I've been on some. Um, and then the Burgundies, the, the, the ones which have gone the most crazy, actually, are the white Burgundies. Who, who knew? I, I didn't realize there'd be such a market. But those have, have just gone ballistic. Um, but it's, it's, it's fun just to look at this catalog just for fun, even if you're not um, bidding. Um, it's, right. it's a really amazing seller. And you should, um, what you should do is just get a bottle of this and sit, sit and consume a bottle of this whilst you're... Um, is that the Vino Verde? My yeah. favorite Vino okay. Verde? That's my wine. So you just open a bottle of that and look at the catalog and um, drown your sorrows with this that you can't actually buy the wines in the sale. So, Dan, do you know the Broadbent Vino Verde? It's such a great wine for the cuisine. I went and I looked at some of your menus. This is that's the match made in heaven. It, it and it sounds like it's at my personal price point as well. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna have to get my yeah. It's under ten dollars a bottle, so on retail, so you can probably buy it wholesale. Um, yeah, Dan, my company um, Broadbent Selections is uh, a a wine importer. We um, import wines from all over the world. And you, are you in um, Texas or Arizona? Uh, fortunately, right now with the virus, oh, neither. Okay. But your restaurants are uh, uh, all in DC, Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm built. I'm based in Richmond, Virginia. But um, uh, Winebow is our distributor in your market, and. Um, we have a, a, a really great, just go to my website, broadbent.com, and you'll see what we represent. We, we have a lot of, you know, restaurant business is our thing. And obviously, uh, just like everyone else who sells to restaurants, we're suffering along with the restaurants, and we hope it all recovers. But um, Bartholomew, are you familiar with the D.C. metro area? Yeah, 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 it's an hour away, hour and a half. You're in Richmond. Is that what he said, Jennifer? Richmond, yeah. Virginia? Do you know who else happens to be in Richmond, Virginia, that I just spoke to yesterday? No. I'm going to say his name. He's a great chef. I don't want Dan to get nervous because he's such a great chef restaurateur. His name is Jimmy Sneed. Are you familiar with Jimmy Sneed, Bartholomew? Jimmy Sneed. I, I've known – I knew Jimmy Sneed when he was – I mean, I've known him for 35 years probably. Um, oh, his, his, his daughter, Jen, owns a um, – a, a a vegan um, yeah. uh, restaurant. Just uh, actually, from my office, I drive past her restaurant every day um, because it's exactly halfway home. <laughs> so, so, so this circles back for Dan because Jimmy Sneed was he the chef de cuisine? What was his when it was with uh, Jean Louis over at the Watergate? What was what was his position? There? He was just cooking with. He was at the Watergate with Jean Louis. Yeah, the, 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 the chef roots are amazing around here and they run deep. Richmond is like a whole nother universe though. And I had a good time about 18 months ago, my wife and I went down there and there was some really great restaurants and it's a, it's a fun little town. You need to get in touch with me. There's, your wife. There's, a picture. There's his wife. That's a picture on the right is his wife. Okay. That's, <laughs> this is how we do it here. Yeah. So when he goes back to Richmond, Bartholomew, he's going to come down. Yeah, you can come to this my office. This is my office, and come and we'll pop a bottle. And do you promise you'll talk in this fun accent that you're using? Look, 
I don't have an accent. I have a language. You have the accent. No. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, I'll talk English to you. I, I like it. You will, Bartholomew, you'll be glad to know that I actually hold, an, hold a British passport and both of my parents are from London and my sisters were born there. So uh, give me a glass of wine and I can talk just like you. Yeah. And do you know I import the top English sparkling wine? Have you ever had Gusborne, the top English sparkling wine? No, but I want to drink some with you. Yep. Come on down. Come on down. So where were your parents born in England, in London? Um, my, dad grew up in, my dad grew up in Stanmore. Uh, and my mom grew up in Wimbledon, actually, although she was born in Austria and then her family, that was a good time for the, for the Jews to, to move out of that area. And so then she was raised in London. Yeah, my, my, uh, my grandparents lived in Wimbledon, but then they, they had to evacuate to Devon during the war. Um, yeah, it's a great little town. Yeah, I'm really pissed off because this COVID nonsense, I, had, I won tickets to the Wimbledon um, day seven on, on Centre Court. Oh, no. <laughs> it's bloody annoying that the one year you get a ticket and you can't go because it's cancelled. But anyway, so that'd be... So this is Christie's, 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 Christie's. Now let's get to Dan. So go to Christie's, go buy your broadband wines. Can I say that? I'm not getting paid this thing, but I'm just, you know, he hasn't even sent us a sample. I haven't even gotten a case of the mail. He never sent your address. I would never send my address. It's rude. That's the problem. <laughs> Who do I look like? Mark Buecher? Oh, nobody knows him. <laughs> Cut that. So uh, listen, Bartholomew, we'd love you to stick around. Dan's been really, um, really generous and insightful. And uh, the things that he's been writing and the things that he's been sharing um, have really been finding a growing audience. And yes, he's a, a successful restaurateur and operator in the Atlantic area, uh, mid-Atlantic area. But it's his, his really human global perspective in how we're all going to get through this and what he's been writing that really prompted us to bring him on today. And, and uh, I love that he's become part of our uh, food family here because everything he writes and the tone that he writes it with, uh, it's just, it's really inspiring. And it's what you expect from a leader and an innovator. And from a young guy, it's awesome to see. Um, Dan, talk a little bit about how, well, tell us first, Tell us about your family of restaurants and, and how you came to be an operator. You mean his journey? Would that be the word you're using? You're looking um, yeah, I'll give you the little nutshell. So restaurant ops is all I've ever done. I started working in bars and restaurants in college. When I graduated, I went, went into the management training program with Fridays. That was back on Fridays, cooked everything from scratch. It was amazing, yeah. high volume experience. Really learned the details there. Went to Cheesecake Factory, um, which you think of now as a big company. But when I started, there were five restaurants. Um, and so I moved to Southern California. And again, small company, scratch cooking. And then just grew my career. I left when there were uh, 30 restaurants. And so I got to, I grew, the company grew, did some other things, uh, worked with the market and bakery and Phil Romano in Texas and kind of expanded beyond just restaurants into fresh food and home meal replacement and catering and bread and pastry. And then when I was 30, can I just stop you right there? Sure. In this journey, as you're coming along, are you seeing the next step ahead or are you just absorbing along the way? 
did you see where this trajectory that you were on was leading you? Did you have an idea where we were going as a food culture and a, as a food industry? I, probably not. I think that would be a little bold, a little revisionist to say that. I mean, I wrote my first restaurant business plan when I was in college. So I, I always, I can say that I had a vision for myself. I wanted a shot to be in charge of something and to have nobody to blame but myself. Um, but I knew I had a lot to learn before I got there. And then, you know, watching the industry change over time, I, I think that I always knew that company culture and, you know, I never thought the customer was always right. I thought that the employees and the team was what mattered and was what really won the game on behalf of the customer. Right. So I think I always knew that and that has proven out to be right and Fortunately, the industry is starting to see in many corners a shift towards a, you know, a human-centered or an employee-centric experience. Um, but I, I can't say I had like an exact vision. I, I got a little lucky with the whole farmer-owned thing. So keep going. How did you get to farmer-owned? By the way, um, Jennifer, that is a really great um, tactic you're using for interviewing. Like, okay, so keep going. <laughs> Are you from the valley? Like, okay, so keep going. So, why don't you just say, so keep going, you're so cute. Oh, you're so cute, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Sorry, Darren, I've got to just get in this sometimes. I mean, she is, I don't know if you know this about Jennifer, she has one of these. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes, I yes. know that, and I know Jennifer, and I think that um, she can say whatever she wants. Oh, here we go. Even though I, listen. Dan, my roots are right around your corner. You know what I'm saying? My roots. <laughs> so when you let's go, let me just ask some questions. Jen, do you mind if I probe a little bit? Do a little probing because I'm sure there are because of the as the writer, author, and publisher of the Food and Beverage Magazine Guide to Restaurant Success, you are more extremely well equipped to do so. But not to mention my magazine and 12 million monthly readers. But more importantly, about back to Dan. So Dan, so you went to Montgomery County. Is that your first restaurant? Is that how you in Maryland? Is that where you started? No, it wasn't where I started. My first restaurant was actually just outside Dallas, Texas. That was my first one, and that was my first big, spectacular failure. Um, right. And then okay. I moved back here to Montgomery County. And then our first farmer's restaurant, which is called Founding Farmers, uh, we opened downtown D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue. And then my second Founding Farmers was Montgomery County, Maryland. Ooh, downtown D.C., that's a big move, right? That's good. That's fun. A little scary? Really scary and coming on the heels of having failed um, before, I think it took some courage, a little more stupidity, and frankly, someone else's money. So that was sort of the recipe. And then mm -hmm. we went for it. We got a great partner with the uh, North Dakota Farmers Union. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful. we're able to put together a totally mission-driven vision of a whole new business model, an economic model, sharing profits with farmers putting mission over profit, but still with the goal of generating profit. And so that's what's let us, you know, play the long game over the years. And I think if if my restaurants, our restaurants survive this pandemic, it will be because of the the culture and the DNA of the company and the and the business structure and, and the original vision, I think is what'll what'll get us through. But there's no guarantees we survive. No, and we've never met, Dan, but but I saw your name. I, I knew the name of the restaurant. I've le I left D.C. a long time ago. You know, I grew up there, D.C. area. I went to American University. I know um, 
all the, the, the I like to call them my little Yanta clan, right? All the all the Yanta clans from Bethesda. You know, I spent my my formative years uh, at Pines of Rome, right? Inside in Bethesda, it's all these great restaurants, and uh, and then of course all my uncles and cousins they all own businesses out there. And what you're doing is 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 so awesome because everybody wanted. There was a point where where he is Jennifer became very. Um, very changed, chainish, not necessarily Friday's chainish, more like Cheesecake Factory, that level of chains, right? Um, and then he sort of broke out of that, which was nice, right? And now, but then you're even now some guys like Kava and all these other guys right there, which I've never been, but I hear a lot about it. They're sort of becoming the chains from there, which yeah. is exciting. Yeah, I, I think that the, um, I definitely saw that. I mean, I call it chain restaurant hell, and and so strategically we look for the places where the the guests have nothing but chain restaurant hell and and then i see an opportunity you know the great thing about the chains is they know how to operate and they're consistent and they're professionals and they're business people and that's your roots bro that's where okay. you go and so i but, but let's just, i mean let's just also mention that if the chain says this is a good place to operate they've done all the analytics to identify the location and geography of opportunity so I, I don't knock the big chains at all. I don't criticize anything about them. I'm not a big company hater. And I did. I got great training um, on the corporate side. And what my partner and I try to do is bring sort of like the stability of professionally run corporate restaurants with what I think is sort of the joy and the magic and the, the everything that comes with being an independent restaurateur. And somewhere in there, as you put those things together, because, you know, if you have a place you love and the vibe's great and it's run by an independent chef or an independent restaurateur, but it goes out of business, like what what good is it? So I think it's it's about bringing these those two worlds together. How many do you have right now locations in different restaurants? We have seven locations plus we have our own distillery, which is called Founding Spirits, which operates from inside our, one of our restaurants in downtown Washington, D.C., and just before the COVID, Michael, Dan and his company had around 1,500 employees. That's a really big, important number because that puts you into the uh, echelon of operators that really, that's like a, an indicator that these guys know what they're doing and they're doing a really good job of it. Um, and then COVID hits. Dan, what happens next? Uh, yeah, it's awful, really. Um, you know, we laid off. Uh, just over 1,100 people. And, wow. you know, I just have to say, every time I say that, it sounds like sort of one data point, but it's not. It's 1,100. It's one plus one plus one. It's one family. It's one wage earner supporting a spouse, kids, you know, multi-generations, you know, 11, one plus one plus one, a thousand times over. Um, it was awful, scary. Um, and, and then motivating, like, you know, fuck it. You wake up the next day and you say, what's our plan? You know, like. I need to apologize for his language. Oh. I need to apologize. Sorry. Okay, uh, we have no FCC here. We're totally good. Okay, good. I, I just didn't want to offend you, Jennifer. I mean, look at you. You're so waspy. I just wanted to make sure you understood what you meant. So this we, is how we talk in New England. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I don't even, for me, it's just vocabulary. So I, I forget to be on my best behavior. But, um. So, you know, we, we promised our team when we laid off our staff for as long as the business exists, we'll give you free food until we can offer you a job. Wow. 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 
And so, you know, so we, how many are, how many are open right now? How many out of the seven are open? All seven restaurants are open. We never closed. at At our worst moment, we lost you know ninety seven percent of our revenue. Uh, but we decided quickly. You know, you get knocked down. Are you going to get up or are you knocked out? And so we created Founding Farmers Market and Grocery. We kind of went into that business. And then by three weeks after the layoffs, we started rehiring and building sales. And so even in April, when things were pretty awful, we just decided to be aggressive and lean into it. And look, it might still break us as a company, but it won't be for lack of us, you know, staying in the game. Now, Jennifer, this is what we've always talked about, right? This is the guy like me and many others that do, do things, fails, comes right. back, fails, comes back, right? And then has this spark. And then what's happening now, Dan, see, I, I left before you got there, but I used to have this enormous floral business. And you'll start asking people, they'll tell you, everybody, everybody would go there. And in the end, I opened too many stores and I was young. I was in my 20s and I just poshed the whole thing gone, right? But I didn't stop. Just like you, you don't stop. You create, you create, you create, right? And restaurateurs, you're always told, don't go into restaurant business. Don't ever do it. The best way to make a million bucks is to start with 10 million. All these great things, right? But then you do it anyway, right? Now's the time to do what Dan is doing, Jennifer. And this is what we talk about because it's to reignite the spark and not be scared and not be fearful. Do it because they can. You have it in you. All that negative energy, just to like talk about negative energy for a minute, and Jennifer likes to do that. But everyone's like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And it bur- you burn it all away with your spark at the beginning, right? That's still in you. Now, I see a lot of these guys, and they're my buddies. They're like, I don't know if I can do it again. I go, dude, what are you talking about, bro? I did not do it. It's easier now than it was. You've got your infrastructure. You've got your customer base. You just have to be more creative. You don't have, like Dan, remember the first one? You had an empty shell that you had to fill with stuff. You had to find customers. You had to find your 3,000 people coming in and out as a customer base. All these things. Now you already have it, right? You have this great foundation. And yeah, it's scary. And yeah, you're going to lose some money in the beginning. And then, but you need it's just rethinking, restructuring, right? How is it going to work? And that's what we love to see about this. This is such an inspirational story, Jennifer. You know, and I'm not that guy. Like, I'm more of a bullshit, you know, I'll screw with you all day long. But Dan, you're going to put a tear to my eye. Now when I come into Maryland, I'm going to take you to dinner, and I'm going to take you to medium rare because I, from what I was told, that's the best place in Washington D.C. Was I lied to, Dan? Was I lied to? I might have. Been. I thought Dan's place is the best place in Washington D.C. That's an inside joke. That's an inside joke. My buddy owns a restaurant. My buddy I'm owns. I'm not an insider, but I. My buddy named Mark Buecher owns a restaurant called Medium Rare and tells me it's the greatest restaurant it's ever been. Yeah, and and you know what? I think I think second to mine. Buker and his team do a great job. Yeah, Buker never quits, right, dude? Buker, same kind of thing. That fire. He's relentless. And that's, I also think that the relentlessness is, at least for me, look, I've got kids in a family. I've got people who are willing to come to work, for, you know, with, with my team as the employer, you know, and they put in their blood, sweat, and tears. They could work anywhere. They work for us. We owe it to them to, keep them safe, as safe as we can from the virus. We owe it to them to keep their paycheck flowing. We owe it to them to try to bring them back to work. And so that's, I guess everybody finds their motivation in different places, but I feel, I feel obligated because it is on the back of all your employees 
that if you have success, that's where you have it. Nobody does it alone. And so, you know, you owe the people who do the work every single day. And that for me is very motivating. And they're also your face, right? When you're not, and when you can't be at seven restaurants at one time, right? So these are the people that represent you. And that's the, and if you treat them that way as partners, right? Cause that's really what they are. They're the, they're the front, like my sales team for the magazine and everything I do. I don't talk to everybody. I don't knock, knock, knock on doors and handshake. But these are the faces of people. And sometimes those faces are prettier than mine. Now, Dan, you may not have that problem. Right, Jen? The way Jennifer's gushing, I'm a little concerned. But um, no, but that's the case, right? You walk in, you want to see, hey, oh, hi. Oh, my God. How have you been? You're, you, it's an extension. And, they, and I think they feel that from you, you know. But we can also talk about restaurants all over the country that we don't feel that from. And we can also talk about those same restaurants that have closed because of that reason alone. Because there's no connection. There's no reason for them. You know, they want to go to your place now because there's a connection. After I talked to all those girls today and the guys from Maryland that all go to your founding farmers, they absolutely go crazy over it. But that's why. Because you're not there all the time. Hey, uh, I want to get, uh, I want to make sure people know that um, Dan's blog, Dan Simon Says, is one of the most insightful uh, blogs of leadership, innovation, and insight. Um, Dan, talk a little bit about how you got started um, sharing your perspective uh, on your blog site. Um, you know, I'm the youngest of four. And um, when you grow up with older sisters and an older brother, all of whom are sort of smarter, better, faster, uh, you really are in a constant search for trying to find your voice. So you know, if I'm to kind of reflect and do my own therapy here publicly, I think I maybe always like wished I could be heard. And the great thing about writing a blog is I could tell myself, you know, like I'm putting my voice out there. If anybody hears it, great. If people like it, if they listen to it. So I think part of me, it's just for me. I want to put it out there and share what I have. Um, and another part of me and the reason that I do it is, I really believe that in business, the companies that should deserve to do well are the ones that connect with their customer. For us, we, you know, they're guests. And so I want people to know what's behind the founding farmers or the farmers, fishers, bakers, farmers and distillers, like what's behind that logo. Um, and so I think it's fair to give people, you know, I don't want to ask people, spend your money with me but you don't know where you're spending your money, right? Every time you buy any food, any anything, you're voting with your pocketbook. So my blog is a chance to put my words out there, but also create a little separate platform for my restaurant because not everything I say represents the business exactly, but it represents me. One of your most recent posts essentially said, this is what we have. You got to stop just waiting for whatever's going to come next and you have to take action. It is one of the most powerful blogs I've read. It's one of the most powerful, insightful, encouraging statements that I've seen anywhere in the hospitality industry. And I think everybody that I know in the IRC and in that community were just like, we all needed to see this. And it's like, you knew this is what we needed. Would you talk a little bit about how to how this, how this post came about and, and the gist of this is what we have? 
You know, Jennifer, first of all, thank you, Jennifer. I mean, what you're saying is really, really nice. And I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think that I, because I care how people are feeling, I, I notice and connect a lot with, with the vibe and the emotions that I'm getting from my team and the other restaurateurs and people in the business that I talk to. I spend a lot of time trying to help, ask for help, mentor, you know, get mentored. And so much of the vibe that I was picking up and, and what I was just hearing was this like, oh, you know, we'll get, there'll be another side to this. We'll get to the end or like, we're drowning here. We need this to get solved. And it just started to distill in my brain as, as that's really not the answer. The answer is here we are. This is what we have. So let's have a plan and let's do it. Maybe there's a solution. Maybe there's all these other things that come later. Maybe not. But the short thing is the one thing we know for sure there is right now. We know the rules. We know the playing field. Take the adjectives off it. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. It's scary. It's, you know, it's all of this stuff. Yeah. So what? Here it is. And now let's do something with it. And so, I don't know. I, I I think that's what motivated me to try to put pen to paper and put those words out there. And so far, the response to it has been, you know, more than I expected. Let's talk a little bit. And part of what really resonated for me was this idea that because now is so painful, we have to look past this moment. And we got so comfortable not being in the present moment of the pain that we didn't rip off the Band-Aid. And we couldn't get out of it because we're all still sort of stuck here. And because there are many factors around us over which we have no control. One of the most powerful things in your essay that you wrote about this is what we have is suggesting that we have to take an action, regardless of where you are in the food chain, in the supply chain, whether you are a farmer or, you know, a plate finisher, uh, you've got to do something, whether you're a grocery store, whether you're anywhere in this, in this hospitality world, in the farmer's market, somewhere, not only are you saying we've got to take an action, but you're suggesting more than taking an action, you're saying you've just got to not be stuck here. Would you talk a little bit about how easy it is to get stuck here? You know, human nature is to sort of form habits and routines and organize thoughts around however you're feeling and whatever you're doing and sort of structure it in a way that you can feel stable. And so I think that a lot of what has happened is what feels stable is like hunker down, pause everything, hold your breath and just wait for this to be over. And so if you're lucky you'll just merely survive. That's right. And and that's it's really a false narrative that we've sold ourselves. You can't hold your breath that long. Um and the thing that may get any of us to, to somewhere better is us. And so holding your breath and waiting for some help from somewhere else or someone else uh, you know, hope is not a strategy. It's a feeling, but it's not a strategy and it's not, it's not a plan. Since you wrote this piece, 
You've also had some other essays come out, one of which was Don't Let Your PPP Be a Bridge to Nowhere. You're in the greater metro Washington, mid-Atlantic area, arguably the epicenter of where a lot of the thought leaders and industry think tanks and lobbyists and politicians and, and the scuttlebutt of our industry might be happening uh, right now. So you're hearing lots of things that you've put these two pieces out as really meaningful. As our friend in the business, what are you hearing on the ground that would make you write a piece, don't let PPP be a bridge to nowhere? Will we have more? What's going to happen? What are you hearing? So, Jennifer, I'll tell you, I am fortunate, you know, to be in D.C. and to um, have the opportunity to talk to some of the senators, you know, directly and folks I've known from the restaurant. And um, while I'm not a corporate restaurant guy by any means, but to, to get sort of plugged into some of those communications. And I will tell you what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing is that our industry's blueprint that we, you know, that folks are lobbying on behalf of, that the IRC's worked on, that a lot of smart, plugged in people who are right about what we need, that those proposals are dead on arrival. Wow. Um, and that the, the thing that we can hope for is another round of PPP with some different rules and some structure. And I think, you know, from what I'm hearing, um, I'm actually not so worried about the drama you hear in the news about, you know, the Republicans can't get along and they come out with one plan and a few. I, I think there's a lot of posturing there. I think there will be another round of PPP. I don't think there's going to be a, a specific focus on our industry. I hope there is. And I think that PPP with some revised rules can be very good for us. And um, I would encourage everybody to you know, reach out. If you think you're not a lobbyist, yes, you are. If you think you don't have a voice, yes, you do. Get on the web, find out who your reps are, find out who your senators are, and just send an email. Your voice matters. If you're anywhere in the chain in our industry, no matter what you're doing, your voice matters uh, and we can affect things. So I'm not expecting a restaurant industry specific thing, at least not in 2020. Uh, and that's, you know, and look, what do I know? But that's how it looks. And so I wrote that piece. Don't let don't let PPP be a bridge to nowhere to try to make the point with hopefully some of the folks who will read it um, in Congress who can understand do something. Right. Because otherwise what you have done is actually a waste of time. You know, it's like giving somebody CPR for 15 minutes and then stopping before the ambulance gets there. Are you a hero? They're dead now. And so if you want to, you know, change your approach to CPR, but you've got to do something to keep the heartbeat going, that's what our government needs to do. But if there's not access to capital and an infusion of money and support into our industry and retail in general, the, the devastation, which will already be bad, is going to be absolutely awful. Given that you're an operator of substantial impact in your region, given that you've got proximity to the politicians, lobbyists, and legislators, given that you've got a, a real fantastically clear crystal ball and your ear to the ground, that you're sharing these things with us, let's just, let's just suppose that in the next six months through the end of the year, if things are challenging, if there isn't monies to replace the funds that are stopping at the end of July and people get in our industry and 
all over the country that have lost their gig and are then losing their financial support, we're going to have these waves of people who are in need. Your displaced employees, your furloughed employees had you to come to for some food and their family got fed. What do you think could happen? What are people talking about could be the next wave, if you will, of consequences? And how are we as an industry needing to have a wake-up call to that and a backup plan for those? Uh, and again, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I just see what I see and I say it. So maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I think you're going to see the lines at the food pantries get even longer. And I think you're going to see that uh, Jose Andres, while it really feels like he was like dropped, I'm not a big you know, believer in a higher power, but it feels like this guy was like dropped from the heavens. Jose Andres can't single-handedly feed everyone in America who's hungry. He is an amazing role model. Um, I think you are going to see hungry people. I think you are going to see food insecurity um, grow. And somewhere in there, aside from being really scary, is an opportunity for people who know how to produce food. Um, I think we're obviously going to see a reduction in the unemployment benefits, um, which will will force some people back into the workforce, even those who are scared or nervous, which I respect and understand. So I think there's probably a combination of it might get a little easier to hire folks, which could be helpful. While I think there's still going to be so many people out of work, especially with this potential next round of closures or, or government restrictions, which again... I'm a fan of flattening the curve and putting science over certainly my own economic interest. But I think there's an opportunity for restaurants or people who know how to cook food, buy food, make food, sell food, to meet the customer where they are. Find out where your guest is. If your guest wants you to meet them at their house or meet them on their porch or meet them at the curb or meet them outdoors or meet them at the park, then sell them picnic baskets. If your local county or your local state is going to put money into the food pantry, which the local governments are doing. And if they're not, they need to be doing it. You don't want those food contracts going to the, the usual suspects of the huge corporate providers. The big corporate food providers, they have access to capital. They're sitting on millions of dollars. It's the small independents like us and, and all the other folks out there that need these local contracts to yeah. cook for the food pantries to help the government supply food boxes. And somewhere in there, I think there are opportunities to get some revenue and get some, some grant money or some local business money to cook food for the folks in your community who need the food. So that's where I see some optimism because that part of the chain can come together uh, and do some really good. Uh, Jose Andres uh, and the World Central Kitchen has a new adapted model for um, decentralizing some of the... Oh, my friends from Chiltipic are with us. Gloria Badia is here. Do you know Chiltipica's products? We've got to get you hooked up with them. Um, thank you. Hi, Gloria. Um, I, I want to make sure that we highlight, though, that, that this moment in time is really powerfully um, possible because we, as an industry, as people who know how to cook big, make a lot of food for a lot of people, and World Central Kitchen knows this particularly well. They're now partnering to decentralize, for funny name for the World Central Kitchen, um, but they're decentralizing in partnership with local restaurateurs. Have you joined them? I have, and, and Jennifer, let me say. Would you address, I, I wanted to have you sort of tell people about how that, because people might say, how does that help an operator? 
Uh, it's incredible. And what they did, I, I mean. Will you describe it for people? Sure. They so World Central Kitchen is able to attract now at this point large donations, whether it's government money or independent donations or however they get their funding. And what they realized that they could do is that they could contract <clears throat> with smaller restaurants. And so I had an opportunity for about six weeks with one of my restaurants and we produced uh, 1,800 meals per week. Wow. And they paid us for them. And so, you know, it's it's a lower price, but it's enough to keep people on the payroll and keep the lights on. Those 1,800 meals a week for, I think, about six weeks. It was business-saving revenue, I presume life-saving food. And so folks can, you know, other restaurateurs can reach out to World Central Kitchen, um, probably also organizations like the United Way and other organizations that are able to bring that money in the top of the funnel. And again, contract, maybe a small restaurant who can make I don't know, 600 empanada platters a week. And then if, if one of these charities can buy from the independent restaurant, handle the logistics, the ordering, the pickup and delivery, it, it really is an incredible program. And we'll get some links and we'll put that up. But Dan, before we let you go, and I'm really thrilled to have you here with us. We've got a few more minutes. Um, will you talk about uh, the food supply chain your relationship with farms and farmers and the relationship at the core of your mission between operator and farmer is really dynamic and unique. And it lets you speak from a perspective of knowing a little bit more because you're part of the food chain deeper into it. Will you talk a little bit about, about, about that part of the supply? Cause there's a lot of buzz right now in the gaps and the um, limitations, those juggernauts that are occurring in the food supply. And I think people are starting to get a little bit worried. Yeah, Jennifer, th th this is actually one of the things that I'm hopeful that the pandemic has highlighted, that the, that the customer and the public can, can learn about while, while it's complex. So I'll, I'll try to just keep it short. Um, Take all the time you want. I just, I want to be respectful of your time. No, thank you. It, it's that, the biggest, I think one of the biggest problems in the, in the supply chain is the monopolistic approach with big agriculture. And so this starts at the top with federal legislative policy and, and the administration's policy when there's no antitrust enforcement. So you want to know why there might be no pork or no beef on the shelf at a grocery store? It's because three or four companies control 80 or 85% of the processing market. One of those companies is owned by a Chinese multinational company. So this is really a national security issue. It's a food quality issue, which is a human health issue. Um, I wrote a blog about this too called Farmers Don't Matter. So if you and want- let's, to just, let's just stop right there because I think that's one of the, the, the glaring hiding in plain sight secrets that threatens us profoundly. Sure, all the buffets in town closed. All the soup toma uh, sweet tomatoes and soup plantations are closed. Jason's Deli, anyone that had a buffet, they're closing. That's an easy to see. Gee, there's a security and health risk at those. But we have something so much more uh, great white shark-like uh, threatening, looming. And, and it's this uh, scary part, he cue the Jaws music, uh, of our food supply chain 
and our national security exposure. Yeah, antitrust legislation directed or antitrust action directed at big agriculture is one of the solutions or one of the places to improve this. It would make our food supply chain so much more resilient if there were 40, 50 processors of pork, beef, and, you know, or even value adders through the plant-based supply chain. And so you just can't consolidate it with these huge multinationals because then what do they do? Money's all that matters. Profit's all that matters. No wonder the workers all get COVID and get sick. And then the whole supply chain wobbles. And then those companies say, we're going to run out of pork in America. And they get the president to say, we're going to use our legislative power to force these workers back to work. It is, it, it is offensive. Uh, the National Farmers Union is doing some incredible work communicating what individual shoppers can do. Um, so it's a, it's a complex topic, but that to me is why the food supply chain is so wobbly. It's been consolidated to a few players. There's very little regional processing. We use as many regional processors as we can. That's why I'm not running out of food because we own some of our own trucks. We bring some of our own stuff and we use regional processors, not the big monsters. And those companies that are owned by the big Chinese-owned multinationals could make the food supply from their sources that they own and control go away like that, and we don't even think about that. It is a national security issue. It is a human health issue. And if the public really knew, they would vote more consistently with their pocketbook for what they buy and what they ask for in restaurants and the grocery store. But the good news is, we can spread this message. We can teach folks about it. Folks can learn about it. And it doesn't have to be this impossible to tackle topic. We can really make progress. Um, this kind of uh, quasi crossroads where the hospitality industry and, you know, public policy and politics uh, swirl around together is the place I know Michael and I would like to go all the time. But it's also the place that's hard to um, cultivate the inspiration that will trigger the perseverance in the operators and entrepreneurs and the displaced people from our industry that have had their places closed down and their gigs go away. It makes it really hard. It's what will drive it, but it's also the place, if you listen to it too much, it's really easy to get bummed out. Michael, Dan, let's talk a little bit about this silver lining in this moment in time to get people really reignited and re-sparked in their passion for being operators and entrepreneurs. From your own standpoint, Dan, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a ghost restaurant? Are you going to do more to go? You were talking about picnic baskets. What are two or three things that you really see as being viable no matter where the track of this roller coaster goes? So for me, it's... Um there's mail order opportunities to expand the total available market uh, in, in at least one of my jurisdictions. They're changing the laws so we can do bottled cocktails to go. So we're, we're going to really heavily get into that business. And then it's about experiences at home. You know, if that's where the customer is, I, I think anybody who knows how to look, we used to cook and entertain and the customer would come to us. I think there are a lot of opportunities out there to figure out how to cook and entertain and take that show on the road and deliver that show. There's ways to cut out the door dashes and the Uber Eats of the world. 
create your own jobs, bring your delivery in-house so you can do more of an experience, connect more deeply with your guests. I know this for sure. Our guests miss us. They miss what we do for them. They miss being together in our places. They miss interacting with our staff and our team. They miss the memories we help create. Inherently, that means that that opportunity is still there. When people miss something, they want it. So if we can't give them the exact thing, let's give them something that feels similar or hits that same thing. And I know the guests want our industry. They want our places. And I'm sure there's opportunity to, to find a way to make those guests happy. It's just rethinking. Right, it's really, you've got to you've got to think out of the box. You really do. You've got to, and you have the ability. So take a break. You know, a lot of times people aren't taking breaks. You know, take a break and just rethink. Instead of coming from that stressful place of scarcity and fear, re- rethink it. I think is what really has to happen. You know, I'm not again. I'm not you know all into this whole like spiritual stuff like Jennifer is, but if you could center yourself and be like, this is where I came from and go through that, what can I do differently? You know, I, I we do, Dan, just so you know, and, and Bartholomew and, and, and my lovely Jennifer English, Food and Beverage Magazine, I have to rethink, right? We need readers all the time. I always had to, there's always competition in the end of magazine industry. So it's, if I don't get readers, I don't get advertisers. How do I get the readers like Dan, right, for potential advertisers like Bartholomew's wines, right? If I can't get his wines into your hands, right, we do no good. So what we do is we use IP targeting. So if somebody's on Words with Friends or on Facebook or they're looking up articles online on their phones, all of a sudden Food and Beverage Magazine is going to pop up. And it's going to say, have you read this, right? Um, we were working with some big companies, big, big one, of the, one, of the most, one of the most iconic Italian restaurants um, in the world called Il Molino on IP targeting for their clients, right? Right before the pandemic hit. And we were hitting them in like Gucci and Louis Vuitton and you know where where their where their diners would shop, where their diners would go, right? If you're a small pizza place in a neighborhood, you know, this is a great opportunity to reach everybody because they're all online right now. Everybody's home. They're online. They're reading articles. They're playing with their apps. They're and, and this is called programmatic advertising, but we we pop up, or we could pop up with that. I do it with guys like Bartholomew, right? Like I track this guy down and I stalk him to the point where if he's like, I'm not in this magazine, I'm no good. I'm not I'm not worthy. I'm not a worthy person if I'm not listed in Food and Beverage magazine. But for smaller pizza places, for re- local restaurants, local pubs, local local eateries, you can reach everybody. And these are things that that Dan, you coming from the corporate world, maybe know about, right? But if you're a guy like Marco at Pines of Rome, right, and you've been 60, 50, 60 years in the same kitchen, I know they move, but in the same kitchen, you're not going to know what's out there. You're, your kids are going to know what's out there, right? And this is, and those are the guys that are getting scared because they don't know. They're so used to living in their restaurant, which is their world, right? Then they don't know what is out there to bring more people in. Or to at least send your message out because they probably haven't even built a database of clients and customers. You guys, Dan, obviously you have all your customers and you have their database. And you happy birthday, and you tickle them and you hit them and you put. Now you can say, "Hey, come on, let's do a picnic basket." We have we have Broadbent wines, and I worked a deal with Mister Broadbent that instead of charging ten dollars a bottle, I could charge you two dollars because that's the kind of friend he is. Bart, right? We do that. 
Let me just say <laughs> what most people don't understand and appreciate about about broadband, but about the the beautiful vino verde, which has its roots in in a Portuguese tradition. These are Portuguese wines. But what I really love about his vino verde is it's a lunch wine. It's a lower alcohol by volume. It's something you can drink during the day, during a brunch, during a luncheon, at a picnic in the afternoon. It is a it is a perfect summer wine. It's a perfect seafood wine. It's a perfect lobster roll, clam roll, fried scallop wine. It's It's got so many things that are... No, come on. I've been drinking vino verde since I'm 18, and I went to the Algarve for the first time and fell madly in love. This is important because these are the things that we get to talk about because we get to share the things we know and we love. And, and when we talk yeah. about how we can introduce people and how we're going to all reimagine, and we're picking a little bit on Bartholomew. But Jennifer, Jennifer, this is what I'm talking about. It's about relationships. And with, for what Dan does and all the guys like Dan, obviously some may have more restaurants, some may have less. I mean, we were just on last week with, with, with my friend David Burke, right? We talked to Tracy Niperot. Like we talked to these guys. We know. And, They've got to be, and these guys have the bandwidth and the availability to be creative, right? This is where guys like Broadbent, right, need to come into their restaurant clients, and it could be your distributors doing it, and giving them ideas on how to survive. And I could probably tell you, Dan, has one of your liquor distributors come to you and said, I've got a great idea. I can put you with this guy, and we can push this out and market this. They don't do it. They're not taking out of the box. I literally had to do that recently for a brand um, it's, it's, uh, it's called Ledoux Spirits. It's a country music whiskey, you know, about a country guy whiskey. And I hooked him up with country bars in Vegas that were doing stuff and we were able to connect it. And then the bar got excited and they got more business in, right? Because they were able to do the cocktails out and all. So it's creative thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's difficult to plan the battle when you're in the firefight. And so, you know, what you said is exactly right. You do need to pause and take a breath. It doesn't need to be for a week, but maybe it needs to be for half a day or a day or two days. And I think the liquor distributors and the wine distributors and everybody in the chain needs to, you know, take a few deep breaths, find a, find a moment and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to just think for a minute. First, I'm going to breathe and then I'm going to think. And then I'm going to say, hey, what, what if we did this? Come up with three ideas and throw them out there. No sacred cows. You know, for us, I've never done happy hour. 10 hours. I'm not going to discount. I'm not going to discount. I'm not going to discount. What did I start last week? Happy hour. Like it's let go of the sacred cows. Let go of the boundaries. If there's a, if there's a vendor that you haven't reached out to or, or you don't, you're not built to ask for help, fuck it. Ask for help offer help, collaborate. And you know, if I need to have, maybe I need a broadbent bottle on every one of my tables. <clears throat> Why don't I put it there? As a preset. You know, with a little neck hanger that tells the story, a message from Bartholomew and, uh, and put a little price on it right there at the table. You know, like hotels do with their bottle of water. And then you're like, well, it's here. Let's just drink it. And mm -hmm. then you can add it to the check. I mean, I've never done that before, but you know, I just, I, we just got By the way, Dan, that is an old time Italian restaurant trick. When you were <laughs> Dan, you're not old enough to remember this, but I, of course, that. And look remember at my this? smiling. Bartholomew knows you would go into an Italian restaurant, and there would be that bottle of Chianti in the wicker basket part, right? Yeah, sitting yeah. on the table, 
And they would move it. Yeah, it's, it's funny, Dan said that he worked at the Cheesecake Factory in California. Um, and I remember the Cheesecake Factory in Monterey, where Andrea Fulstner, who was the uh, uh, sommelier at the time, she actually put <laughs> exactly what you're talking about on the bottles <laughs> in, uh, in that restaurant back in the 80s. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, things come, come around again and, and become good ideas again. We do broadband broadband wine bottle on the table with a half price off because Bartholomew gives them such a great deal. That's what I'm talking about, Dan. Yeah, yeah but we, we've also been doing some really creative stuff with restaurants where we can do um, you know one of the one of the lasting positive things about the COVID um, crisis is that basically Zoom calls or whatever you have um, you're using Streamyard whatever it is, uh, these things are going to become permanent things. And yeah. we, uh, it's given opportunities, for instance, we have a winemaker in Argentina, Duna Vinet, who can't come here very often. Um, but now we've got her doing um, Zoom um, in-home tasting at people's houses. And what we can do with restaurants are things like, we do um, winemaker dinners, but instead of doing it in the restaurant, you get your, uh, you send it out to your mailing list and you get, 20 people to do a takeout dinner and we do a Zoom tasting with them and things like that. There are lots of creative things that you can come up with in this. Now, Bartholomew, have you have you have you sent that message out to to the people that carry your products? Have the distributors brought that to their tables? Have they said, hey, I knew you need to, well, you can now pick, you get a home delivery, whatever, pick it up, and you get a bottle of wine, and we do a Zoom call, and Bartholomew Broadbent is on that call talking about. Yeah, and, and and it's it's not just me, but we've got um, in our company we we have we employ two master sommeliers, and we also have other highly qualified people who can talk about wines. As, as so here's, a, here's a question, Dan: Has any distributor come to you and said, "Let's do something like that"? No, I think that the distributors, and I get it, I understand it. Everybody's in a firefight, and and that's why I'm saying if you and look. It's been a firefight and it still is every day, right? We have all our COVID protocols and we've got health safety checks for everybody who shows up. I always have somebody who's, you know, at the doctor or out on sick leave. We're trying to figure out a new business model. We're, we're at the same time as a country and a business dealing with race relations and, and you know, making sure that we're learning to see through the eyes of people and, and build, you know, truly respectable workplaces that care about people. So you have all this. And it's easy to deal with the urgent and not do the important. And so I, what I tell myself, you know, I have little reminders on my desk, like every now and then take a breath and think. So when you're just running on instinct and you're in the firefight, you're not going to do it. But um, there's a lot of bright minds out there. We just need to remember to put some oxygen into them and then get some folks to do some collaboration. And I think that's where you'll see the best ideas and new relationships and paths forward. And only some people have to figure it out. And then the rest of us can copy them. You know, like that. Right, that right. That'll be, that'll be great. Yeah. Of course. And, and it's sharing of best practices, which is one of the things that we've hoped to do here. And again, you've got a generational success story in the broadbent portfolio that gives you literally generational expertise of best practices on the ground and everything from the old Chianti bottles to maybe doing something modern today where every go box has a vino verde or you have a tasting or you have a tasting and a pairing to go with the boxes that go out of the picnic baskets you refer to. 
The other thing I want to say is when you get somebody like Bartholomew Broadbent, who's really as a, a sophisticated uh, an entity in the world of hospitality as exists anywhere in the world, you have somebody who is amalgamating and curating best practices from all aspects of what he sees, Dan, similar to what you do. But, but when we can turn to somebody like Bartholomew and say, what could we try? And he's got a virtual encyclopedia of best practices and innovations that might work for this moment in time. These are essential partnerships. You're not just buying a bottle of wine from Broadbent. You really are at this now level getting the benefit of this experience. Oh, come on, now stop it. <laughs> if you go to my website, um, there's, a, there's something um, on the navigation panel, there's something we've got called the Hitchhiker's Guide Around the World, um, which is a um, something we've, we really put on for retailers to sell um, um, packages to their clients where basically they have a master sommelier in the house talking about the wines which they bought to drink and and we could do that with restaurants as well. There's no reason why it couldn't be restaurant um, clients. Who are, you know, you you charge your clients a, a, a fee, and and they get the they get to have a a master sommelier in their house talking about the wines which they bought from the restaurant and things like that. There are lots of really creative things <clears throat> we can do. I think Dan, you your wines all bought by a. Your, the wines in your restaurants, I believe, are bought, uh, selected by a, an outside company or or a consultant? Or, no. 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 Or you Rachel, have a core buyer? Rachel Vistica, she's one of my team. She's worked with us oh. for a long time. She started as a bartender. She's got a great palate. She knows the product. And, and Rachel uh, and, and my partner, Michael, select all the wines. Fantastic. I will get um, from... From Jennifer afterwards, so I'll get your email address so you can put us in touch with Rachel, um, and we'll, we'll see see what we can come up with as a creative idea for your group. And that's what we do here. We make relationships, right, Jennifer? I love you it. Guys, these guys already have. So let's thank your friends, Jennifer. I'm getting screamed at by a three-year-old. If you guys can't hear that in the background, he doesn't well, want to be on. Do. So we're going to say thank you, Bartholomew Broadbent from Broadbent <clears throat> Selection. The Christie's Auction House auction of the Benici Nosy collection is in the full final stages, and there are indeed bargains to be had. There are still wonderful wines to discover. These are the wines that you'll be very proud to be pouring right now. And at this moment in time, when you wake up and you don't feel grateful for the fact that you, you woke up, if today isn't a special bottle occasion, I don't know what is. Uh, and I don't know any better way to celebrate it. Bartholomew, thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm going to take my dog home to feed, feed her. Um, and I'm quite lucky because our air conditioning went out, so my family's all gone to my in-laws, so I get to have the house alone. It's really, really nice. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Good luck at the sale. And we're going to wrap up with our friend Dan Simons uh, and give him the last word. I want to make sure that uh, you know how grateful we are that you were with us today, that we got to introduce the people who haven't found your blog yet and you're really wise 
generous expressions of, of where we are at this moment in time. And I want to give you the last word. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, I would just say that I am, it's not about optimism or pessimism. It is about right now. There are things that we can do. We can grab the reins. We can grab the steering wheel. We can take a deep breath and we can say, this is what we're going to come up with and this is what we're going to do. And I'm absolutely certain that when we do that, our odds get far better that we get somewhere good. And even if we don't get somewhere great right now, keep doing that and we will get somewhere. And that's what we need to do. All right, well, we, want to have Dan, we want to have Dan back more often too, before he gets well, to yeah, Dan, We'd love to have you on regularly. I like your perspective a lot. I think you're a very wise uh, operator and, and a, and a pretty smart guy. But, but I also want to say that in this moment in time, I want to urge everybody, you are right now in a place where there is no ceiling. Stop putting the ceiling on all of the thought and operations that you're in by saying, all we want to do is survive. We really want more than that. And if we limit ourselves, then that's all we'll be able to do. You reminded me of that when I was reading your posts, and that was really one of the reasons I wanted to introduce you to Michael and have you on because you implicitly suggest there is no ceiling. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you for Michael. It's, it's really nice. I appreciate you both having me here and, you know, sharing the information and you made me smile and I laughed a few times. So that's also good stuff. Well, I just want you to be a good sport when people come into the restaurant and ask you and say, they know me. I yeah. Don't, don't ever say you do. It's a, it's, a, it's a, never met the guy. Never met the guy. I'm going to have to play yeah. that out each time. I'll see how I'll see. Yeah, bet, bet each individual person. Perfect. And when he's urging you to do a mukbang box in your to-go picnic basket section, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Mukbang, it's our new thing. We're going to do, I told you, we did the mukbang minute moment. I love this. This is what we're doing, Jennifer. It's so not foodie, right, Dan? It's so not snotty foodie, right? I'm not exactly totally sure what to make of it and exactly what what it all is happening there. So I'm just going to plead the fifth. Yeah, just plead the fifth. (laughs) It's a very interesting thing. It was like Little Tavern in the 80s. That's all I'm saying. You weren't even around then. You wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. Jennifer, can we say goodnight and say thank you to Dan? Thank you. And tell everybody the name of your blog one more time. Uh, DanSimonSays.com Beautiful. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Dan. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Politz has written a must-read, The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, or wherever fine books are sold.